the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know us, the baby boomer generation, those born between 1946 and 1964, 76 million all told. And as that group of Americans reaches retirement age, sometimes even younger, 10,000 a day become eligible for retirement. It's commonly referred to by retirement planning experts as the grain of America. But, of course, with this huge number of Americans that are getting older come all the things that attend older age, disability, illness, just the process of growing older. We are seeing an explosion in home caregiving, and it's for many reasons, many for very good altruistic reasons that families see the value and honor in keeping a loved one at home. We certainly did that with my grandmother when she was not really capable of staying by herself anymore. We never really thought that a so-called rest home, retirement center or such was appropriate because we wanted her to live out her years in her home and with her family. And by the grace of God, we were successful at accomplishing just that. Still growing numbers in America today that perhaps um, never thought about buying long-term care insurance, mistakenly thought they had it when they didn't, find out that something has happened. It could be uh, the product of growing older. It just could be illness, disease, or an accident that causes a loved one to now be confined at home, and suddenly you find yourself in the position of being a caregiver. And while initially it sounds like you're just simply doing your duty, after a while... The days turn into weeks, turn into months, in some cases turn into years. And as we learn, many of the people that do the caregiving wind up, while certainly doing a great and honorable thing, wind up shortening their own lives. How can we make life a bit better, a bit easier for caregivers, many of whom feel like they have no hope? Joining me now is Peter Rosenberger. He is founder of Caregivers with Hope. And, Peter, great to have you on the program. First, let's kind of put this in context, if you would, by sharing a bit of your own story with your spouse, Gracie. Well, Craig, thank you for having me. And um, it has been a journey for me. I've been doing this now in my 30th year. I met my wife a couple years after she had had a horrible accident, and we met at college. She had returned to college, and, you know, I saw that she limped, and I knew that she had had a wreck, and I saw that she had some scars on her lower legs particularly, and uh, did, But I didn't really have any frame of reference of what it was like to be in a relationship with someone who was hurt. She'd already had 20 operations by the time I met her, uh, but we were young and optimistic and, and, and both very much in love. And quite truthfully, Craig, she's a babe. You know, and so <laughs> I was just thinking, this, this girl's a babe. But then, I, then I heard her sing, and, and I knew that, that, that the soul that was there was just somebody that I wanted to care for for the rest of, of our life together. And I had no idea. I was just as dumb as a box of rocks when it came to this sort of thing. And uh, to give you a a fast-forward here, we're up to now that I can count 78 surgeries. Now, that's not all the procedures. That's just surgeries. She gave up both of her legs in the 90s. 
She's had more than $9 million worth of medical bills. It's probably closer to 10 or 11 now. 60-plus uh, doctors. I stopped counting at 62 years ago, and she's had a dozen more come on since then, I think. So it's just, it just keeps escalating. Seven different uh, insurance companies and <clears throat> 12 different hospitals where she's been treated. So this has been a medical nightmare uh, that has never plateaued. We've had mo- seasons where things are okay and it's not quite as dire. We do some fun things together, but then we have just constant grind of, of issues that are going on. My message is all about stewardship for the caregiver. And I have to realize that I didn't do this to my wife. I didn't break her, and I can't unbreak her. I can't fix this. And God has me here for a much different purpose. This challenge, you know, when uh, we exchange vows at the altar, it's uh, in sickness and in health, and we r- kind of rattle through that. And, 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 and we, like the, uh, we like the living and the health part, the uh, sickness and the death to us part portion we really don't give much context to. And, you know, in all fairness, we're young, we're starting out a new life together with uh, our loved ones, so we're probably not thinking about how things may end. And yet, inevitably, we know that everything has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And and for a lot of people that uh, maybe suddenly there's just that sense of, oh my goodness, I, I don't recall signing up for this. Well, and they did. And and that's just the bottom line. They did. And now some of the people that are doing this are not doing it for a spouse. They're doing it for uh, a parent or they're doing it for a cousin or a brother or a neighbor. Or there's there's all kinds of things. Uh, I I, I spend a a good bit of time talking with uh, people in the homosexual community that are taking care of somebody that's that's a friend, a neighbor, a partner, or whatever, that they didn't have any kind of vows or anything. They're just in this situation. Uh, it, it's it's everywhere. It's affecting everybody. If you notice the other day uh, when um, uh, the Denver Broncos won the won the game, the, that's the first time that the AFC Championship trophy has been accepted by a caregiver, because Bolin has uh, uh, the owner has Alzheimer's and his wife accepted it. It's everywhere, and it's affecting everybody from every kind of walk of life. Whether you're married, whether you're, you're just neighbors, whether you're in it's, you're living together, it doesn't matter. It's everywhere. If you love somebody, you're going to be a caregiver. If you live long enough, you're probably going to need one. All right, let's talk a bit about uh, this sudden shifting of roles. And I say shifting of roles because oftentimes we're, we're accustomed with, uh, you know, we're raising a family, raising kids, so uh, uh, doing things like fixing meals and bathing them and changing diapers. Well, we get all of that. We also get about the fact that they're eventually going to grow out of that process and be able to care for themselves. Sadly, that's not true in all cases. And when we talk about caregiving, particularly for the elderly, we understand that... The, the real end scenario is probably going to be deterioration, not the hopes of suddenly getting better. And so you, you know, you begin to sick, get sick at eighty-four, and by the time you're ninety, you're healthy as can be again. It doesn't work out that way. No, it doesn't. And you don't also have with uh, families with special needs children. Mm. Uh, my brother has a daughter with cerebral palsy. She's been this way uh, from birth, and she's basically like taking care of a two-year-old, and she's twenty-seven. So you're dealing with so many different dynamics in here. And what, I, what I've found, Craig, is this. I mean, I've been doing this a long time, but what I've found is the task of caregiving, uh, whether it's changing diapers, whether it's making meals or bathing and all those kinds of things, those things can be tedious and even unpleasant. But that's not really the heartache of a caregiver, I have found. 
most people can kind of punch through those things. The heartache of the caregiver is that there doesn't seem to be any end in sight, that this thing could go on for, for so long and that they are losing themselves in this journey. Uh, caregivers suffer from three eyes, Craig. They lose their independence, they lose their identity, and they become isolated. And it's in that craziness that most caregivers start to despair and, and start to, to struggle. Those late-night conversations with the ceiling fan, and, and you're just wondering, is this ever going to end? Am I ever going to be able to kind of get, get on with my life? And it slowly dawns on a lot of caregivers that this is our life. This is it. This is my life. And this has been my life for 30 years. And I've had to learn that I can live a healthier life in this. I could be happy in this, or I can be miserable in this. That, that's my choice. You know, I can't choose in, on the, the painful parts of life. We're going to have pain no matter how it comes. But I can choose on how I'm going to respond to it. And that's what I'm trying to learn as a caregiver each and every day myself. And, and I've also learned that healthy caregivers make better caregivers. And I can't simply throw myself recklessly at taking care of my wife with no regards to my own healthiness. And if I, don't, if, if I do that, I end up compromising the one person standing between her and even further disaster, which is the caregiver. So there, there's a complex set of emotional challenges that go on with this, and that's what I'm speaking to these caregivers that are in the, the valley of the shadow of death, and it is a long valley. But you don't have to be miserable in it. We're as happy or as miserable as we want to be. So a lot of it has to do with a matter of perspective and attitude, and I want to talk a bit about that when we come back because, you know, truth be told, this is oftentimes lonely, very stressful. I recall when my godfather went through this with my godmother who had been diagnosed with ovarian cancer. Um, She had a very difficult, very painful last three, three and a half years And it got to the point in the last year or so of her illness, she did not want to be left alone for even a nanosecond. He was not only her primary caregiver, but she demanded that he be in her side for every second. I mean, he could have a neighbor come over to watch her just to give him an opportunity to go to the store. And as he is driving to the store, the poor thing would be on the telephone, on the cell phone, calling him, wanting to know when he was coming back. So... Dealing with those realities, how do we go about having the right perspective on this, the right attitude, so that indeed you as a caregiver can survive? We'll come back to that part of the equation. Peter Rosenberger, founder of Caregivers with Hope, information, by the way, on the web at caregiverswithhope.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. Peter Rosenberger, our guest. He is founder of Caregivers with Hope on the web at caregiverswithhope.com. You know, Peter, as you know from your own experience, this can be physically, mentally, emotionally, relationally, oftentimes financially draining to the point where a lot of people say, hope, I, I don't see any way out. For me, hope is, and I've heard caregivers at kind of the end of their physical, mental, emotional, relational rope say, for me, the only way out, the only relief is when my spouse passes. How do you go about changing your attitude, your mentality regarding this, this challenge that you're facing and, and be able to find hope? Well, there, <clears throat> there's several things. Uh, hope, hope for the Caregiver, and that's the name of my, my new book, 
is not hearts and rainbows and unicorns. It is the conviction that we as caregivers can live a calmer, healthier, and even more joyful life, even while dealing with grim realities. Now, everything in Scripture tells me that that's the case for us in our Christian walk. You know, Paul said this clearly over and over. You know, we see through the glass darkly right now. We don't see what's going on. We don't always know. Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm, I'm going to prepare a place for you. It, that's, our, that's our hope. Our hope is not in eliminating all the unpleasant things of this earth. That, that is not our hope. That is beyond my pay grade. Look down at your hands. If you don't see nail prints, this ain't yours to fix. Mm. You know, that's not our hope, is that we're some, somehow going to live a pain-free life. Our hope is knowing that God has spared us as believers through something for, from something far worse than multiple amputations and Alzheimer's and, and Parkinson's and, and 30 years' worth of, of chronic pain. He spared us from something far greater than that. And our hope is that as he is working out his purposes in all these things, we can trust him with that knowledge of, that he has saved us. He has rescued us from something far worse than this, and he is building this thing in a way that we just can't see. He's weaving his redemption through stuff that we just can't understand. And that's what gives us a new perspective so that we can look at the things in our life with trials and knowing that his perfect will is being worked out. And, and Romans 8.28 comes into play here. You know, for I know these things. He, Paul didn't say, for I'm, I'm guessing. He said, I know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. That's our confidence. So when we're looking at somebody who we're having to, we can't reach anymore because they're impaired through pharmaceuticals or dementia or whatever, we can love them tapped in because we're tapped into the inexhaustible love of God through Christ. And you said before we went to the break, you know, that, that struggle that we have that when, when they won't let go and, and the, 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 your godfather was trying to go to the grocery store and, and your godmother kept calling. This is what I want to tell my fellow caregivers. They're going to do stuff that, that's going to absolutely drive us up the wall sometimes. They're not doing it to us. They're just doing it. And we don't have to take everything so personally. They don't want to be sick. They don't want to deal with dementia. They don't want to deal with chronic pain. They don't want to be doing all this stuff. We just happen to be the closest person to them. But we can learn to let some of that go and not take it all personally. You know, what is it Mother Teresa once said? You know, bless you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the privilege of serving you in your many horrible disguises. Mm. And, and you know, you can, you can be all bent out of shape about this. But my goal for caregivers is that when we do stand at a grave, and one day, most likely, we will. And that's the goal, by the way, is that for a caregiver to stand at the grave, not be in the grave first. And that's a hard thing to say, but that's the reality. But that we stand there without clenched fists without fists that are clenched at, at our loved one, at families and friends that didn't maybe help the way we wanted them to, at, at, at ourselves for what we could have, would have, should have done, or even at God, that we can learn to live peacefully with these things. Even if your loved one is not dealing with all this stuff, you're not living a trouble-free life. Everybody's got some, something going on. This is just a little bit more accelerated, and it requires us to, to bend our will into the will of God more and faster than we probably would otherwise. Is part of this, Peter, uh, sort of the, the natural flesh inclination to push back against um, 
this aspect of the reality of life. I, I, I often, when, when there's been debates over things like, uh, oh, we want to legalize, uh, say, uh, physician-assisted suicide because we, we refer to this as death with dignity. And I, and I often think to myself, well, wait a minute, since when is death dignified? Uh, the deterioration of our body and going through pain and agony and all of that stuff, there's nothing dignified about that. Why don't we focus on living, living with dignity? And death, sadly, is a product of man's sin nature. It's our fallen condition. Is it, is it helpful for the caregiver to be reminded of that, or are we just kind of pushing back against the reality of the grave and maybe our own sense of, of mortality? Well, I think what happens is, is we, we, are, we are screaming out for relief. And so we, we rush to things like, uh, you know, euthanizing, things like that, and, and so forth. We're just screaming out for relief. And, and I, I've taken a different path. I mean, again, I've, I've been doing this for, for three decades. I've been doing it since the first Cold War. <laughs> but I, you, you learn to accept that maybe relief is not the thing that we're supposed to be seeking so much, is learning to trust God in this. And we place our scared hand into his scarred hand and learn to see, okay, well, how do I deal with this today? See, nobody can do this for a lifetime, Craig, but anybody can do it for 24 hours. And that's really kind of how we as caregivers have to learn to live. You can only start screaming and crying and praying and, and God bail me out of this, God bail me out of this, God get me out of this, or the government get me out of this, somebody get me out of this. You can only do that for so long before that becomes kind of tedious. And you have to learn to say, okay, how do I be sustained in this. And your prayer changes. God, sustain me in this. Strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow. So instead of focusing on our suffering, focus instead on our serving. Well, exactly. And, and, and focus on what God is doing in the midst of these things. You know, you go back and look at Solzhenitsyn after he got out of the Russian prison, and he said, you know, bless you prison for the change you've made in my life. I mean, something happened to him in that prison. Corey Tin Boone, you know, uh, I could just go down the list of, of people, Victor Frankl and all these other people who experienced life on a much greater level in the midst of some very, very harsh, harsh thing. Nelson Mandela, he went into prison almost as a terrorist and came out a statesman. And there's a point where we walk through these suffering, we walk through these bleak things, but if we are willing to, to go inward and to be changed in a healthy direction through this thing, we find that we, we can experience a, a quality of life that we thought was unattainable. There's beauty everywhere. There's excitement everywhere. There's joy everywhere. But it, sometimes we allow these things to obfuscate our view because this does affect us, like you said, our health, our emotions, our lifestyle, our profession, our money. Everything about this is affected. But is that necessarily a bad thing, and is it causing us to act like jerks? See, I, I'm from the mindset that that this does not cause character defects. It amplifies what's already there, and mm. it gives us an opportunity to deal with this in a healthy manner if we so choose. And the question then becomes, like I said at the beginning of the conversation, it's all about stewardship. How can I be the best steward for my wife? How can I be the best steward for me? What is the best choice for the unit? And as your godfather found out, that sometimes he had to get away. And he has to recognize that it's more important for him to have moments of respite and healthiness, and he's just going to have to not answer the phone so that he can be a healthy person. She needs him healthy, and people that are in pain or people that are diseased or whatever, impaired, they can't always see that. And so it's up to the caregiver to make those unilateral decisions without guilt, 
recognizing that they're do they're loving them better when they're becoming healthier as an individual. And of course, the irony is we we also sometimes I think Peter focus on our inconvenience, the difficulty, the trial that we are facing, and we perhaps as close as we are to the situation uh, cause our our perspective to become very distant. And by that, I mean, we forget about the fact that that individual who was in the bed doesn't want to be there, didn't ask for this, doesn't prefer this, doesn't see this as a better option, would much rather be up and about and living life as opposed to being bedridden or dependent upon another person to do everything from take them to the bathroom, to change their diapers, to shower them, feed them, shave them, all of that. Um, We sometimes forget that. And, And to remember that when they do on occasions lash out. When they do get upset, it's only at the closest person because they're really looking at their circumstance and their situation. And maybe because we're, we're so close, we lose eyesight of that. It's very easy to do it. That's where the flashpoints come as a caregiver. And, you know, when I get in those points, I, I, it's hard to push a wheelchair with clenched fist. Mm-hmm. I've tried it. It doesn't work. <laughs> you, can't be, you can't be that hacked off and try to push a wheelchair. And, and, you know, I can't, if I'm going to change a dressing on my wife, I'd rather do it with, with tears on my cheek than with my teeth grinding, you know? And I think it helps for me to remember how much Christ condescends to me. And if I keep that in perspective, I usually can navigate through these, these quagmires and these landmines a little bit easier. Um, but when I, when I get so wrapped up in my own self, that's when it's hard. But, but there, there are tools and strategies that we as caregivers, that's what we're all about at Caregivers with Hope, is helping those caregivers learn to how to navigate these things so you don't set off those, those emotional landmines that seem to go off in these, in these high crisis moments. And I want to encourage listeners, by the way, Peter, on the heels of that exhortation, to take advantage of the website. There's a lot of great resources there. The big message, as you're hearing tonight, is you're not alone. Um, Yes, it could be worse than this, so be grateful in what you have. It's a matter of your attitude, your perspective, and and as Peter, I think, very aptly mentioned, uh, people don't turn nasty and cruel because they're dealing with someone that is in the important circumstance of needing, requiring a caregiver. It, it rather amplifies that pre-existing character flaw. And so to learn how to examine this through the magnifying glass of Scripture and then get the right attitude, the right perspective from a biblical viewpoint, from Christ's viewpoint, can be all the difference, can be very freeing for you. Information again on the web at caregiverswithhope.com. That's caregiverswithhope.com. And our thanks to Peter Rosenberger, founder of Caregivers with Hope, for being with us tonight on Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You go to the mall sometimes or maybe shopping and you watch a parent not parenting and the child's running amok throughout the stores, pulling things off the shelves, the whole bit. And you think to yourself, how come somebody doesn't teach that parent how to parent or hold them responsible for their child? There ought to be a law. Well, apparently in Dallas there is one, though it has nothing to do with encouraging parents to parent. In fact, it seemingly has just the opposite effect. You might have heard of this case of a parent whose daughter was engaged in, at the age of 12, no surprise there, engaged in some inappropriate chatting on the cell phone. Happens all the time, right? So dad did 
what most thinking, caring parents would do, and that is he said to his daughter, taught you not to talk like that. I'm taking your cell phone away. The police were called, and the back end of the story is that he ended up spending a night in jail, had to pay $1,500 in bail, and it went to a jury trial. The father being accused of stealing his daughter's telephone. I guess I would, I would be in a lot of trouble as a parent because in my house it would be you live underneath my roof, I pay for your bills, and until the age of majority, my rules go. And if you don't behave appropriately, the cell phone will be taken away. Can anybody tell me right now listening that's over the age of 18 who doesn't remember a time when mom or dad said when you were 16 or something years old, you acted up, you misbehaved, you didn't do your chores, whatever, and the car keys were taken away from you for the weekend? Happened to me a bunch of times. I guess I should have called the police on my dad and said, hey, he stole my car. Let's try to see if we can't make sense out of what seems to make no sense at all. Dr. Greg Jans joins us. He's a best-selling author of more than 25 books. He is founder of the Center for Counseling and Health Resources and the author of a new book that probably should be in the hands of every parent that has a child that's 18 or younger. It's called Hooked, The Pitfalls of Media, Technology, and Social Marketing. And Dr. Jans, thanks so much for making some time out of your busy schedule to join us tonight. Is there something about this story I'm missing? I mean, really, this man was arrested for taking his daughter's cell phone because she was texting somebody inappropriately? There's got to be a backstory. Please tell me. Oh, there's got to be. But what is it? It's it's, uh, unbelievable, isn't it? Just simply unbelievable. And uh, the role of this Several things that are confused here is uh, we've really uh, probably uncovered quite the conflict that was going on prior to taking the cell phone away. Something else was going on. And the other piece is uh, the role of technology with our young people and what's happening. Let's talk about a couple of things. First, there's a bit of background, and this will immediately, I think, for most parents listening, say, aha, uh, the, the, the parents of this child are separated. Maybe they were never married. From what I've read, it doesn't appear as if there was ever any wedlock involved. So the daughter lives with mom but comes and visits dad. It was the daughter who had the telephone given to her by mom. Dad took it away when he saw that she was engaged in some inappropriate texting. And so part of this just seems to be a bit of a a battle between parents. It is. And, of course, the kids are caught in the middle of it. Um, And we know, too, that uh, there could be some different values as it relates to what's acceptable, even in, in text messaging. And uh, is that really private information? If you supply the cell phone and you have a kid who's under 18 and they're texting, is that private information? Let's talk what's about your, this because I, I've, I've, seen, I've seen several postings on the web that seem to suggest that there's more than one individual out there that seems to be of the opinion that, you know, this child has her, her rights and after all it's an invasion of privacy, this, that, and the other thing. And I'm thinking to myself, really in, in 2016, knowing the kind of dangers that lurk out there on the Internet, behind uh, social media sites, everything from uh, you know, pedophiles to, uh, well, you just about name it, uh, e- even these days we're seeing kids kidnapped and, and, and being 
brought into the sex trade as sex slaves. What what thinking logical parent would say, oh, yeah, my daughter at the age of 12 has a quote unquote. I mean, if you want to help give her a little sense of privacy in terms of, you know, don't don't just walk through the bedroom door without knocking first that I get. But a child that has a right to privacy on an electronic device under the age of 18, what is it that I'm missing here? Well, you know, we're back to um, really are we working on protecting our kids? Um, You know, what we do in our home, and I have two boys, is, um, you know, we know passwords. You share your password, and um, the phone or the smart device goes uh, actually in a charger in mom and dad's closet at a certain time in the evening or you don't have it the next day. Uh, We talk about things that are, um, you know, downloading an app. We make it an open discussion. We know that the average age to exposure to pornography on the Internet now is is age 10, 10 years old. So we're seeing boys 14, 15, 16 really have developed what fits more in the category of sexual addiction. I just read a story, Dr. Jantz, probably over the weekend about a mother who had her young son, a 10-year-old boy, had his Facebook account linked to hers. So anytime there was a like or a message sent, she saw what was being communicated. Yeah. To discover that he was suddenly communicating with a 30-year-old man who wanted to make arrangements to meet the boy. There was apparently some graphic exchange of conversation. The mother happened to see this, immediately intervened, turned the device over to police who then, posing as this perp, uh, actually set up a meeting. The guy showed up and he got arrested. I mean, those kinds of dangers. Are there parents that are so naive out there that they don't realize that if they don't control these devices pretty strictly, like in the case of this father here, that the kind of risk that they are exposing their children to is the equivalent of saying, hey, let me give you 10 bucks and send you into the seediest part of town for the evening and, you know, come home by 10. Right, right. Well, you know, here's the thing. Technology, and if you have kids that have been born in the 90s, they're part of the I generation. It's the first uh, generation to be tethered to technology. And there's an underground world, and they're faster and smarter than we are. And every day there's a new app, and kids move in herds. You know, Facebook is old news. We're off to uh, other things. And um, now I can buy an app and put it on my smartphone that looks like a calculator, but it's really a disguised communication tool. Um, We have instant live uh, videoing now, and there's some apps like this that the parents ought to really be concerned about. So we've got to involve ourselves in the lives of our kids uh, really from a protection point of view. And again, as, as we're suggesting, this is not necessarily because you're trying to snoop on them or, you know, you're, you're trying to set up an environment where you demonstrate out the gate that you don't trust them. But the level of vulnerability out there is, is so incredible. In fact, we'll, we'll pose this question for Dr. Jans and have an answer when we come back after a timeout. When I grew up, granted that was back when the Stone Age was here and there was, you know, no electric light or running water yet, uh, my father insisted that if I was going out for an evening or hanging out with neighborhood kids after a certain time of the day, he wanted to know where I was going to be, what parent was at that home, a telephone number to call in case of an emergency, and he insisted upon knowing the parents of the children that I associated with. He said it was just good parenting. 
That was just to protect me from what might be lurking in the neighborhood. Imagine today where with the Internet, it's the whole planet that we need to be concerned about. So what of that? We'll talk about that when we come back to more of the conversation. Do you believe that your child's so-called right to privacy onto Trump, your responsibility to protect your son or daughter? If you were the parent in this Dallas case, 12-year-old daughter inappropriately texting with someone, broken the rules, you say, okay, you break the rules, I'm taking the cell phone away. Is that an appropriate parental response? What about the city of Dallas? Really? They don't have enough crime problems down there that they go and arrest this guy and put him in the hooskow overnight? This ends up going to a jury trial all over the question of the father being charged with stealing his daughter's cell phone because he was disciplining her for inappropriate behavior in texting on said cell phone. I mean, at at what point do our child's rights end and our responsibility as parents begin? Dr. Greg Jantz, he is best-selling author and founder of the Center for Counseling and Health Resources. We're talking about the shocking case out of Dallas. Fortunately, the judge said, there's no evidence here. Get this thing out of my courtroom. But it, it, it begs the question, should parents not take full responsibility for parenting their children? And since when should the police department, the government, get involved in a case like this? A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. So split parents here, daughter primarily lives with mom, visiting dad. Dad sees daughter engaged in some inappropriate texting. Rules of the house are, you can't behave like that, says the daughter. I'm confiscating confiscating your telephone. The 12-year-old pulls the typical 12-year-old conniption fit goes tattling to mommy, who apparently decides this is a great way to get back at daddy, and then through the police demands that the telephone be returned, otherwise it's considered stolen property. Now, that's that's the lay of the land. What's your reaction? Let's go to San Jose and say good evening to Elaine. Elaine, come on in with your comment or question for Dr. Greg Jans on this topic. Good evening. Um, yes, I, it's more of a question, comment type thing. I was listening to Kevin uh, Lehman, Dr. Kevin Lehman, oh, yes. psychologist, uh-huh. and he was making the point that uh, it, it, in this very exact uh, topic of cell phones, that parents don't realize that the phone belongs to them because they are the one that paid for it. So therefore, if a child abuses the uh, rules and guidelines of the telephone, the, the cell phone, then the parent has every right to take it away from the child. Now, in this particular case, I think because of the way our culture is going, we seem to get things confused as to what and who has a right. And you get the right lawyer out there, and they'll sue for the most ridiculous things, as in this case, I do believe. Um and I'm just glad that the um, judge threw it out. Um, but it, it, the fact that it got that far was kind of interesting to me. But I think you're right on when you say that it's, uh, it was appears that the mom was trying to get back at her ex. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that's, really... that, that, that's certainly, I think, a big uh, component here, Elaine. And the other thing that I find of, of, of concern, and Elaine kind of alludes to this, Dr. Jans, and that is the notion that, you know, we're in a day and an age when some of the child psychologists out there say, now, don't, don't spank or paddle a child because that's considered uh-huh. to be abusive. 
So right. then what tools are left to a parent to try and discipline a child in an appropriate fashion if, you, if, if taking away their privileges is abusive and spanking them is considered child abuse and you can't take away the cell phone because now you're stealing property, why do we call them children then? Why don't we just say that they're, you know, miniature adults? That's right. Well, good point. You know, and I think, too, another bigger picture is um, how do we handle a whole issue of technology with our parenting? We know that um, uh, there's some real dangers right now with kids and technology, and how do we monitor this? What do we do? Um, And how do we set up technology rules for our family and our household, and what's our values there? Um, How do we use it for good? So these are all important questions. You have a broken uh, family. Uh, This gets even more complicated because one parent may uh, be more involved than the other in uh, the whole technology realm. And so we we send a lot of messages. Are parents Uh, underplaying the the danger here? I alluded before the break to the notion that my father insisted on knowing who my playmates were, who their parents were. And by the way, if you're going to be over at so-and-so's house, I want a telephone number. I mean, was that overprotective for that era? I'm talking 40 years ago. And if that was overprotective for them, considering what's lurking on the other side of a cell phone or the Internet these days, my goodness. That's right. So what we do know is that uh, that was probably not overprotective. That showed love and care and protection. And right now there's a whole other level, of invisible level of communication, connection uh, that's happening via uh, the Internet and online activity that parents uh, probably for the most part, I'm always amazed how many parents really um, aren't, aren't privy to how much is actually going on. You know, how many kids have received a sex texting? How many kids have had bully behavior online? So I, I just want to open up the awareness. I want to keep this so kids don't feel ashamed and they can talk about it. And, you know, developmentally, um, uh, developmental stages, the research has shown us that overstimulating the brain uh, with nonstop high-intensity blue screen activity um, really over time uh, can create what we call a craving brain. That brain wants more and more stimuli. We know boys are more prone to this. And it can really set you up to have an addictive-type brain and craving more and more. So in addition to some of the obvious things like uh, pedophiles trying to make connection with children, things of this sort, uh, there, there's this whole layer of, of exposing them. And, and I guess it's true then that there, there, there are levels of maturity which our children need to be prepared to what they're exposed to. That isn't to say that eventually they're not going to run into this. I mean, how many of us listening right now have innocently sat down to the computer and, and, and Googled a, a cooking recipe and all of a sudden, my goodness, got hit with porn? Jarella's raising his hand. It happens all okay. the time. And, yeah. and yet to understand, like this one recent uh, junior high school, half of the student body got disciplined because they were swapping uh, naked photos of each other. Yeah, exactly. So it, it, yep. it, is, it is a slippery soap. And, and does it say to parents like Elaine and others out there, uh, you need to take time to get educated and realize that there's a lot more going on and capable of taking place in the digital realm than most of us are really uh, aware of? There's a lot more going on, isn't there, than what we're aware of. Uh, we do something called a digital dinner. 
one night a week. It's okay to talk about anything related to technology. The kids can take charge, and we sit there and learn about things that they know about so that it helps us. <laughs> so, and we also want to promote to have one day of technology detox where you just set it all away and down, and you're not involved with it for a day. and You, you learn how to do a board game. That's a board game, not a boring game. Uh, you begin to do things that you wouldn't normally have done. You're not talking like people actually sitting and conversing with each other face-to-face, are you? Well, I, I knew that I had a problem in my home some time ago, and my two boys were at the dinner table texting back and forth under the table. To each other. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we sure appreciate the time tonight. Thank you also, Elaine, for your input. And uh, let me mention, by the way, that Dr. Jantz's book, Hooked, the Pitfalls of Media, Technology, and Social Marketing, um, is uh, available. And uh, can you get it through your website as well, Dr. Jantz? Visit us at aplaceofhope.com, yes. Excellent. Good good resource for more information and, of course, to get a copy of the book. And, again, you know, this this is a topic that I realize for any of us over the age of 20, uh, uh, we're, we're still playing catch-up. And what comes naturally to the kids is a big learning curve for all of us. But be aware of the pitfalls and the dangers that are out there. This case certainly out of Dallas is at the extreme and yet demonstrative of the fact that this parent was simply doing their job to protect their daughter because uncontrolled, unfettered, uh, this can be a very dangerous um, manipulative tool in the hands of the wrong people. And the kind of stuff that your kids can be exposed to can be very dangerous. I'm not suggesting that it's not great technology. We all enjoy it. Life has gotten a lot easier at many levels, a lot more complicated at many others. But uh, it needs to be a case where, parent, you need to be actively engaged and aware. And I like what Dr. Jan suggests. How about a disconnected, turn-it-off evening for the entire family? Dad's not responding to emails from work. Mom is not texting, you know, a friend down the street who wants a copy of a recipe or trying to coordinate, you know, the, 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 you know who's taking who the, to soccer practice next Saturday. The kids are not texting each other, sitting right across the table from each other and texting each other. Can you believe it? How about just good old-fashioned face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball conversation? Remember how that goes? You say something and I listen, then I say something when you listen, and then we repeat. Fascinating thought, isn't it? wonder how that goes. All right. Thanks so much to Dr. Greg Jantz. Again, the book, Hooked, the Pitfalls of Media, Technology, and Social Marketing. You can get it on his website at aplaceofhope.com. That's aplaceofhope.com. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Media Group. All rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com. 